My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. My eyes fail for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? Though I am like wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decree. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutor? The arrogant dig pit pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me. Men persecute me without cause. They almost wipe me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your Oops. That's all you wrote. That is all he wrote. I just hit a button and something started playing, which is always annoying. Um, okay, we got, before we do anything else, we got uh, uh, Arlene in the projects. We have a need, and I'll say this again on Sunday, we've got a need for beds and dressers. Anybody that has anything that they want to give away, we've got a girl that's moving out of the projects, which is a very rare thing. And um, if uh, anybody has anything extra they want to just give away, uh that would is where that would go and then um lothar is doing better i got a report from him he got a psa test it went from a nine down to a 0.5 i think is what he said so good news there um he's thinking of everybody here always praying for the superior word and then um isaac in uganda the guy that uh does pretty much everything that any person you've ever seen has done i mean he, he does so many things for the people in his community his mother has malaria, and he has asked for prayers for her. So we'll remember uh, them in prayer. And I have other prayer requests, which I did not write down. I've had such a long week. It's been just one of those, well, like every, every week, it just doesn't end. So um, before we go on, we'll read this, and then we'll say a prayer, and we'll get started. Today is, anybody know what today is? It's the 20-something. 25th. 25th. April 25th. birthday. It's yep. whose birthday? My son. Oh, happy birthday, your son. Um, and only eight months till Christmas. Eight months oh, till Christmas. Yay! Okay, April 25th. He was the great theologian of the Reformation. Who are they going to talk about? Uh, no, Luther was the reform guy, but they're... Calvin? Calvin, that's who, yeah. Okay, we'll see. You know, John Calvin had a lot of problems, and people that follow Calvinism tend to have... Uh, uh, they, they elevate him to an unhealthy level. But you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He did a systematic theology, and some, some of his theology is good, and some of it isn't. But we'll see what they have to say about him. We know him as John Calvin, but he was born Jean Halvin in uh, July 10th, 1509 in Picardy, France. He studied law in Paris and was converted in 1533. He later wrote, God drew me from obscure and lowly beginnings and conferred on me the most honorable office of herald and minister of the gospel. What happened first was that by an unexpected conversion, he tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. Three years later, at age 26, he wrote the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, probably the most influential systematic theology of all time. In 1536, he left the Catholic France to avoid persecution and went to Geneva. Except for an interlude of three years, he remained in Geneva until his death. John Calvin was the leader of the French Reformation, the father of the theology called Calvinism, and the founder of the Reformed churches of the world. He lived modestly, never owned his own home, had few possessions, and refused salary increases. Plagued with ill health, he nevertheless preached an average of five sermons a week. 
and wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. When his associates were concerned for his health and encouraged him to rest, he shot back, What? Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? During the last few months of his life, he slowed down but refused to give up. He was carried to the church to preach his last sermon on February 6, 1564. Two months later, on 25 April of 1564, feeling it was time to make his will, he called Peter Chenalot, or I don't know how you pronounce that, anyway, notary of Geneva, to his home and dictated to him. In the name of the Lord, amen. I, John Calvin, minister of the word of God in the church of Geneva, being afflicted and oppressed with various diseases, give thanks to God that taking mercy on me, whom he had created and placed in this world, and I testify and declare that it is my intention to spend what yet remains of my life in the same faith and religion which he has delivered to me by his gospel. With my whole soul, I embrace the mercy which he has exercised towards me through Jesus Christ, atoning for my sins, that I, that under his shadow I may be able to stand at the judgment seat. I likewise declare that I have endeavored both in my sermons and also in my writings and commentaries to preach his word purely and chastely and faithfully to interpret his sacred scriptures. I also testify and declare that with the enemies of the gospel, I have acted candidly and sincerely in defending the truth. But woe is me. I confess I have failed innumerable times to execute my office properly. And had not he of his boundless goodness assisted me, all that zeal been fleeting in vain. As God is the father of mercy, he will show himself such a father to me who acknowledge myself to be a miserable sinner. The second half of the will is devoted to distribution of the slender patrimony which God had bestowed upon me to various family members and friends. In the next month, he quickly declined and, on, and died on May 27, 1564, shortly before his 55th birthday, which I'd be punching my ticket right now because I'm very close to my 55th birthday. John Calvin worked tirelessly almost up to his death literally using up his life in the service of his savior. Reflection, John Calvin's legacy was much more than the few possessions he left to family and friends. His real legacy was the reformed faith and the reformed churches of the world. When you depart this life, what will you leave behind? In addition to your material possessions, what will be the primary contributions you have made? What will you leave to your family and friends? 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. Great stuff. Okay, we are in. Oh, we got to pray. But first, let me put my bookmarker there. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for faithful ministers of the gospel throughout the ages and the legacy that they have left behind. And it's easier for us to very quickly tear apart people because of their doctrine when we have so much more available doctrine today different commentaries of people that saw things differently. And uh, we do have your word in abundance in many different forms and formats. And we thank you for that. We have all of the commentaries of these people stretching back for hundreds and even thousands of years. And we can research things with a fingertip that would have taken a person like John Calvin or Martin Luther or Albert Barnes days to research we can do in minutes. So we're thankful for the access we have to your word. We thank you for the wonderful, precious gift that is your word. We thank you that uh, it is available to us and that we can share it without fear in this country. 
and that uh, it is still, to some extent, being exalted in this country. And we would pray that that would continue and it would grow back to the state that it once was, where it was held in such high reverence, even among our political figures. Uh, that seems unlikely, but we would pray that it could come about and that uh, the people on the left would get a brain and realize that you are God and that uh, you have revealed yourself through the Bible and in the person of Jesus. We would pray this, that this country could be turned around and other once Christian nations could also be that way as well. But we leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that you have a plan which is set and fixed. And uh, so we just leave it there. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 40. Last verse of the, I didn't get to finish last week. We just plumb ran out of time. So, no, what's that? Oh, did you? You watched it. See, I'm, I'm very proud of you. So I'm in the hotel room. It's already done. I mean, you know, you're, you're already home asleep. Yep. And I get back to the room, and they had this crazy clicker for the TV, and I've never seen them like before, and I never turned the TV on, so I just hit it, and it had death breaks. Wow. Like big button. So I hit that, and then it gave YouTube as a, as a choice. I'm like going, I'm watching. YouTube. Wow. How so nice I, is that? I just superior word oh my gosh wow isn't that something see uh, how do you know i was in bed you said that like you're an authoritative <laughs> it was eight o'clock oh i would have been in bed by then yeah that's for sure i don't stay up past eight very yeah very very rare for me to stay up past eight o'clock okay 7 40 is where we're at in my judgment she is happier if she stays as she is and i think that i too have the spirit Okay, here we go. To complete chapter 7, Paul finishes his thought on the remarrying of a widow during the present distress, which was mentioned way back in verse 26. He just noted that for a widow, if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. Anybody? In the Lord. Only in the Lord. Correct. Having said that, he states that the present time may not be the best time to get involved once again in marriage. His thoughts are that she will be happier, his words, if she remains as she is. This is only to be construed as a temporary thing during the present distress. We said that again and again and again last week, because in 1 Timothy 5, he gives this instruction. Let me take you there. 1 Timothy 5, and it starts in verse 11, and it says, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry. So obviously, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the present distress, and that's that. Here, bring that over here. And uh, so let me finish reading this as soon as this guy comes over here. Um, uh, I, I've got uh, somebody that, wait, 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 come here, come here, come here, get down here. Now turn around and look at that camera up in the corner. This is my handsome son. I don't know if you've all ever seen my son. This is my son, Thor. So there you go. All right. Are you going to stay for Bible class? You might learn something. Oh, you're leaving soon. He's got to go to a car show over in Orlando. This is, this is King Drift here. If you've ever watched any of the Drift movies. Um, no. Are you going to go by grandma's house? No. Okay. If she doesn't come, then I'll just, whatever. We'll figure something out. Okay. Cause that's grandma's flowers. Okay. We got to get back to love you. Have a safe time over there. Uh, only if you want to.
Okay, don't do it. Okay. All right. See you later. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to finish what I was reading. I'll go back to verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Reproachfully. Verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Yeah, was, so they're uh, under 60. They, they yes, under 60s are, are considered six. not to be taken in. That's right. Over 60 only. And if she's right. washed the uh, feet of the saints and all that kind of stuff. So that is correct. What's that? 60 is the age for a widow at Paul's time. And that's in the Bible. So that's what we stick with. I don't understand what you're saying. 60 is the age where a widow can be accepted into the care of the church. Before that, he does not want the church to be burdened with a person. There you go. Okay. So here we go. Whatever distress was occurring at the time of this letter to Corinth had passed or it didn't affect those in the area to which Timothy was working as a pastor. Where was that? Ephesus. Very good, man. We got a good brain over here today. Squishy. Um, okay, so um, let's see here. Um, uh, therefore, his advice differs from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Continuing on concerning his words to the Corinthians, he says that they are according to my judgment. This refers back to verse 25 of this chapter, where he began this particular discourse on virgins and widows. In that verse, he said, I have no commandment from the Lord, Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Therefore, these are his judgments on an issue not explicitly explained by the Lord. However, they're in the Bible now, and therefore they are prescriptive, okay? Uh, but this doesn't mean that his words are not authoritative. Instead, as an apostle and one who was under the influence of the Spirit, they bear the authority of the Lord granted to him. And so he closes the chapter with, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. These words don't indicate that he wasn't sure. Rather, as the pulpit commentary notes, it is an expression of personal conviction that he has the Spirit, not an implied doubt of the fact. He understood the authority he possessed and that the Spirit was guiding him. In polite manner, he reminds those in Corinth of this fact. Life application. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 have been given under the influence of the Spirit and for the general edification and instruction of the church. Some of his words were directed solely to a period of distress that surrounded the church at that time. They must therefore be taken in that light and considered when times of distress surround believers at any point during the church age. Paul's words contain wisdom and exhortation, but not necessarily prescriptive commands for such times okay let the elders who rule well be counted by all as worthy of double honor and respect especially those who labor in the call of the word and doctrine which is pure and correct for the scripture says in its pages you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages thus giving us sound advice once again eight one we're in a new chapter how about food sacrifice to idols? We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge pops up, but love builds up. Yes. Okay. Now, chapter 8 has got some really important instructions. I wish that people that are stuck in like the Hebrew Roots movement or that are heading down legalistic paths of uh, unrighteousness would tune into this particular chapter and understand what Paul is saying. And he'll also clarify it a little bit later as well. Oh, before I go on, I have a shirt which says what? Wake up America. Okay, wake up America. 
Uh, this was given to me by Arlene, my friend up in Chattanooga, and she sells these and other things. And so uh, Isaiah 58, 1, it says, I can't read it, it's upside down. But anyway, um, what's that? Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Okay, there you go. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Got it. Okay, I just couldn't read that first one. Um, okay, so uh, if anybody needs shirts like this, she sells them online, and I'll give me, send me an email, and I will give you her uh, contact information. But uh, anyway, thank you, Arlene. Uh, let's see here. Um, 8-1, we just read that. Paul now begins a new line of question answering. Remember uh, that these people had written questions to him, and he is answering those. We can infer that from the way that the structure of the epistle is written. Okay, the Corinthians had written him about various subjects, and Paul is addressing them based on his comment in verse 7-1, which said, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. With the items of chapter 7 complete, chapter 8 takes on this subject, and it will consume the entire chapter, which concern, which consists of just 13 verses. The reason for their question and Paul's response should be obvious. Under the Mosaic Law, there were special dietary restrictions which applied to the faithful. Everybody know that? Anybody tell me what chapter that is in Leviticus? Chapter Begins with the one and ends with the one. Anybody? 11. 11. Yay! Linda got it! Uh, chapter 11 is where the uh, dietary restrictions are. And it, it is, to me, it is as sad as it can be that people impose those standards on people in the church today. That is, one, it's beyond legalism. It's actually heresy because it's saying that we are obligated to the law of Moses in part or in whole. And thus, Christ did not fulfill the law. The law is not set aside in him. And therefore, uh, we are still under law in some part, in some way. And the, the New Testament is absolutely clear about this precept. We are not under law. We are under grace. The law is done in its entirety. And I will say this, that people that talk about the final feasts of the Lord, we've got uh, seven annual feasts, we got the Sabbath, and then seven annual feasts. The Sabbath is a weekly feast. And they say that the first four are completed in Christ's first advent, and the last three are to be completed in his second advent, his second coming. Once again, that is entirely incorrect. Not only is it incorrect, not only is it terrible theology, but it is introducing heresy into the church, okay? We've just got through with Easter, and I've seen all over Facebook. I've been sent emails questioning this. It's gone on and on about the day of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The Bible only gives one option for this. It is not Wednesday. It is not Thursday. It is Friday. And when they start introducing these things, which cause this type of problem with the Bible, because the Bible is absolutely clear. There's no other way to take it than it was a Friday crucifixion. Anything else is not properly representing it. You start heading down strange paths. And we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 13 in my commentaries right now. There are 12 being posted. Chapter 13, I've been typing. And they will talk about strange doctrines in chapter 13. Paul talks about strange doctrines also in his letters. You've got to be really careful what you believe and what you do not believe. There is sound theology, and then there is bad theology, and then there is heresy. Bad theology will inevitably at some point lead into heresy. Okay? You've got to be careful. If somebody says something, yeah, what is it? Um, let me really quickly turn to Proverbs. Okay? I'm going to turn to Proverbs. I think it's chapter 18. If I can't find it quickly, I'll give you a paraphrase of what's on my mind, and it'll be not a well-done paraphrase, and I don't want to do that. So let me take you really quickly to Proverbs. And um, 
let's see here. Doctrine is once you become a Christian, once you become a saved believer, doctrine is all that matters. That is all that matters beyond that point is that you don't get taken down strange paths because if you do, if you start going down strange paths, you will inevitably lead the next person down a strange path. Mm -hmm. And you will have these people like you see on the uh, 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 Facebook and all the social media that are posting things that are absolutely crazy. I did a, a special uh, Bible study a couple weeks ago on one of them, right? Hyperdispensationalism. You get into crazy doctrine, you will inevitably have problems. Here we go. Proverbs 18, verse 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Okay. All of a sudden, it doesn't sound so right anymore. You've got two people that are presenting a case and the first one's, oh, that makes sense. And then, you know, you go to, a, if you've ever sat on a trial in uh, a court, okay, you're on a jury and the, what is, it? I guess the defense stands up first and he yeah. gives his defense and he says, listen, this is absolute nonsense and this guy hasn't done anything and they're going to try to make the case that blah, blah. And you're, you're being convinced by this guy that his case is right and this guy is actually innocent. And then they stand up and they say the preponderance of the evidence from the police, from the, the labs, from this and that, it is without a doubt that this person is guilty and he needs to be put behind bars or executed or whatever the thing is, right? And then they go back and forth and you have to be discerning in life. There's very little discernment left in our world. Okay, that's that's just a truth. I, I think it's probably always been that way to some extent. But nowadays, people are reading things on their iPads and on their phones, and they're they're getting one and two minute bullets of life, and that's all they're getting. They're not thinking critically any longer. They don't teach critical thinking in school in any way, shape, or form. You have to actually ask for it if you want it in college, and the guy probably doesn't know what he's teaching when he gives it to you. So, it's really sad, but. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is going to deal with issues that deal with foods, okay? The law is set aside in Christ, but there are certain issues that are going to come up with foods that are beyond the law. That's what he's going to talk about here. So here we go. He, uh, uh, chapter 8 takes on the subject and it will consume the entire chapter, which consists of just 13 verses. The reason for their question and Paul's response should be obvious. Under the Mosaic law, there were special dietary restrictions which applied to the faithful. They were extremely strict, and they formed an important distinction between Jew and being a Gentile. The issue is addressed in the book of Acts, in Galatians, and elsewhere as well. In those accounts, what is relayed shows the immense importance of the matter for those in the newfound faith, which is Christianity. In other words, it's not a new faith in the sense that, oh, this is just suddenly made up. It is a new covenant which is found because of the fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ. You can't have two covenants running concurrently. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. There are seven more years given to Israel under the old covenant, but the old covenant is done. Those seven years are going to be ineffective sacrifices going on in Israel, and they're going to realize that, and they're going to say, we missed the ball. Everybody understand it? Even though he's given them seven more years, it is replaced and it is annulled through Christ. But he has given them seven more years under that covenant. But the sacrifices are ineffective. They didn't do anything. Nobody is going to be saved in Israel through those sacrifices and offerings that are going to happen. Nobody. The only people that are going to be saved are those that have come to Christ or that do come to Christ. So here we go. 
unfortunately, as clearly as the issue of foods is explained in the New Testament, many have failed to heed the words and have fallen back on the Old Testament law in varying measure instead of relying on the grace of Christ. They again impose burdens which were set aside in the work of the Lord and placed themselves under unnecessary bondage. Even Peter was found to fail in this regard, and Paul had to correct them on the truth of the gospel. Where is that found? Anybody? Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Okay, you're going to get like a bonus today or something. I don't know. We're, wow. If uh, certain dietary restrictions were to arise within Christianity, we would find ourselves bound under a legalistic situation similar to the Levitical laws, and thus we would be found attempting to obtain God's favor through works once again. The strong view concerning foods, then, is that all foods are acceptable and that any process of obtaining and eating those foods is unimportant. However, there is more to the issue than merely denying works in order to be justified. There is the issue of conscience and knowledge, which Paul will address in a wise and clearly stated manner. As the pulpit commentary notes about this verse, they say, his liberality of thought shows itself in this, that he sides with those who took the strong, the broad, the common sense view that sin is not a mechanical matter and that sin is not committed where no sin is intended. He neither adopts the ascetic view, nor does he taunt the inquirers with the fact that the whole weight of their personal desires and interests would lead them to decide the question in their own favor. On the other hand, he has too deeply or too deep a sympathy with the weak to permit the scruples to be overruled with a violence which would wound their consciences. While he accepts the right principle of the Christian freedom, he carefully guards against its abuse. And so, in order to show that there is, in fact, a contrast between conscience and knowledge and that both need to be harmoniously considered, he immediately introduces a parenthetical comment which begins with, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Just because someone may have knowledge doesn't mean that their actions are appropriate. In essence, yes, I have knowledge that I can eat all foods, but how does that knowledge affect those around me? That's what he's going to be addressing in these verses. If it affects them in a negative manner, by harming their conscience, then am I acting in love towards them? No. Additionally, Paul notes that knowledge puffs up. In other words, having knowledge can lead me to being prideful in my knowledge, which will inevitably lead to sin. He is returning to the metaphor he used in chapter 5, where leaven or yeast is used to make bread rise. The leaven is a picture of sin infecting our lives. As we sin, we become puffed up in our actions. Just because we have knowledge of a particular subject, it does not mean that it is right to use that knowledge if it will harm others. Instead, he states the contrasting truth that love edifies. Now, having said that, I just said sin probably three or four times in one paragraph. Sin, sin, sin. We are sinning when we do this. We are sinning when we do this. Paul says as much. You sin against your brother. Okay, you've all read that. You all know that he says that. The good news is that in Christ, we are not imputed sin. Everybody understand that? We are sinning, but that is not being imputed to us. Because if it was, 
we would lose our salvation every single time we sinned. God is not counting our sins against us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. So, yes, we sin, but no, we are not being charged with sin. Watch the sermon this week, The Water of Purification. We did the first half two weeks ago, The Red Heifer. Marvelous, marvelous stuff in this week's sermon, if you can understand what I'm saying. If not, you're going to have to get it, print it off, or read it online. They're posted right online while I'm giving the sermon. All you have to do is go to the Superior Word website, and it's published right there. Follow along if you read. Some people want to just listen. Some want to read. Some want to do both. Whatever. You will understand a lot more about the work of Jesus Christ when, when you're done with these what is that, 11 from 22, what's that, 12 verses, 13 verses, whatever. Anyway, um, 11? No, because you count the first one, so it's 12, isn't it? Yeah, 12 verses. Okay, um, so anyway, um, uh, marvelous stuff. We are not being imputed sin even when we sin. That's an important thing to remember because two things are going on when we are under the new covenant. Okay, he will continue his parenthetical thought in the next two verses before returning to the main line of reasoning. In this then, he is demonstrating wisdom in how he approaches this subject. He will hold the line on the truth that we are free in Christ from all such restrictions that they have asked about. But we are not free to exercise that freedom while allowing others to be harmed in the process. Where there is doubt or misunderstanding, there needs to be instruction in the word of God. Once this is accomplished, then we can exercise our freedoms with a clear conscience. Before I even go on, I will say this. We have now understand that we have knowledge and what is right and what is proper. We know that we can eat anything under any circumstance, whatever. Okay, And we also know not to harm a weaker brother. But if we come to Bible class and we understand what the Bible says, and the Bible says that this is proper doctrine, then we relay that proper doctrine to that weaker brother. He now has the knowledge, and if he does not accept that, you are no longer harming him by your eating. Does everybody understand that? He Once he has the knowledge, it is up to him to accept what the Word of God says. If he refuses to accept that, and he's, I'm not, I don't believe that, Listen, it's right there in black and white. Jesus Christ was crucified on Friday. He was raised on Sunday. I don't accept that. I don't care if that's what the Bible teaches. That is what it says there. If you lost in that, send me an email. I will send you the information again, or I'll send you the link to watch where I did that a year ago. I don't go down roads a second time. But the information is there, and it is absolutely as clear as it could be. Okay, the same thing is true with foods. Once somebody is instructed in that, if they want to bury their head in the sand, that is their problem. You are no longer under obligation to not eat your pork chop in front of him. Okay, this is important to get that. Don't harm somebody. Show them love, but at the same time, show them doctrine. As I said, after you're saved, doctrine is what matters. That is it. What you do with the doctrine that is found in Christ is what you will be rewarded on. Your faith, everything you do in faith, okay? But doctrine is a part of that. When you say, I'm going to look, learn the word of God, that is something you're doing in faith because otherwise you wouldn't bother learning it as a Christian, okay? Anyway, life application. It is not true that we have to avoid anything that others find offensive. In such a case, Christians wouldn't be Christians at all because the message of the cross is... It's, well, it's foolishness, but it is an offense. It says specifically, the truth that hell is real is an offense. And the truth that 
the only way to avoid hell is to be saved through the cross of Jesus Christ is certainly offensive. However, instructions on these and other points of doctrine needs to be explained. It would make no sense to say you're going to hell to a pagan without explaining why. Likewise, it is right to explain our freedoms in Christ to the weaker Christians by opening the word and providing right instruction. After that, if they remain offended by what we eat or where we eat, it would be unreasonable to not go and eat. Their offense has been explained in love, and therefore there is no longer an obligation to refrain from acting in accord with the freedoms that we are granted. And we are granted these freedoms. If somebody doesn't agree with that, that is their problem. If they think that they have to sit at home on Saturday and not do anything because they're Seventh-day Adventists, only going to church and nowhere else, which is actually a violation because they're starting a car, they're doing all the things that they shouldn't be doing according to the law and driving over to the church, okay? That's their problem. The Bible is explicit. The Sabbaths are done. That's uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, right? As the feasts are done, etc. Okay, 8-2, go ahead. Sure. Yes. If we sin... You say it's not imputed to us. I don't. The Bible does. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5.19. But we're not in fellowship. We have to That do, is correct. We have to Expel the, him. Get him out of the congregation. We have to do the first John thing of, of confessing our sin to be back in fellowship. Okay, okay, there you go. But we can sear our conscience and we don't Absolutely that right. doing wrong. That we, is true. We keep doing it and don't judge ourselves. And That's correct. God has a the judges if we drive too fast you know that little blue light that little blue light on the top of the car yeah. that's right but if we do it ourselves you know we're back in fellowship. we're back in fellowship yeah. that that that's very well said because it's one of those things that we have to remember is that if we are not doing things that are right then we need to confess it to the lord and get it out of us if right. other people see that we're not doing right they need to talk to us if they're not willing to listen we need to kick them out of the fellowship that's one corinthians chapter five 100 very well said Burke. good job okay eight two the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know okay no that's that's it you're right that's okay paul now introduces a thought directly related to what he said in verse one in that verse he said we know that we all have knowledge knowledge puffs up but love edifies it is true that everyone has a certain amount of knowledge but for some, having knowledge is believed to be an end in and of itself. Unfortunately, you'll see that in colleges and seminaries. Their knowledge becomes almost their own idol, and it becomes an end in and of itself. They Very quickly, you'll see this, and I, I was astonished how uh, they lose the heart for the Lord. Maybe they never had it. I don't know. Maybe knowledge was always their pursuit. But it becomes something that, I, I'll give you an example. They constantly not just you know once a year but they do it constantly they have debates with atheists and the atheist says his point and everybody pats him on the back and then the christian comes up and he says yes but you didn't consider this and they pat each other on the back and they debate back and forth and they all go home and nobody's converted at all because they are trying to show how smart they are okay it doesn't get anywhere it does no good to debate an atheist in a forum like that all it does is edify the atheist it doesn't ever convict anybody the rest of the atheists are not going to be convicted during a debate about crea creation versus evolution or whatever. It's not going to happen, okay? But they think it is. They think that they're scoring points. It doesn't do anything. 
don't get me wrong, it's important to know these things, it's important to be instructed in them, but there is a point where you take that knowledge and you apply it in your daily life. You don't need to continue to debate it forever. Okay, however, knowledge without a moral compass has led many millions to be killed in war, to the falling of nations, to the subjugation of others, and to a complete lack of true goodness in the world. If anyone thinks they know anything, Paul's words, then is speaking of the person who is satisfied with the head knowledge in the book, but feels that there is nothing more which is needed. In the case of the Bible, Paul would be speaking to the theologian who understood all the mechanical aspects of the word. He knows Hebrew. He knows Aramaic. Woo! He knows Greek. Understanding the historical background of what the writers were relaying grasping the literary forms found in the writings and so on, such a person may feel that he has conquered the Bible and is therefore above those around him who are less educated. However, such a person may know nothing yet as he ought to know. God is certainly far more pleased with the uneducated high school dropout who finds a heartfelt relationship with Christ than the stuffy professor who has never humbled himself at the foot of his cross. All of the knowledge in the world won't get a person one inch closer to Jesus Christ and to salvation. Not one inch closer without the heart accompanying that knowledge. Only when that knowledge, increased knowledge, is accompanied by faith does it take on its true purpose. As we grow in understanding, we should also grow in glorifying God, empathizing with those around us, walking in love with others, and applying the Bible to our every step. This is wisdom then, the correct application of knowledge towards the things of God. Life application. If your heart is right with Christ, you are in the sweetest spot of all. Don't feel your walk with the Lord is lacking just because your level of knowledge is minimal. You will learn as you study, but you will do it on the wise path of mixing your knowledge with your love of the Lord. And just as an example of that, I get many, many emails throughout the week, you, you know, just people will ask this question or not, and people will say exactly that. I wish that I had a, a better understanding of the things of the Bible. I and yet these people, when they write, their emails are filled with grace. They're filled with the love of the Lord, the passion of the Lord. And as I said, you can have somebody that has no education at all. You hear about it all the time. Somebody gets saved and the first thing they do is go out on the streets and start preaching to people. They may have almost no knowledge of the Bible at all, but let me tell you what Jesus did for me, right? That is where the heart is. And these people that have all this knowledge, they go to seminary and all they do when they become professors is tear apart the Bible, tear apart the word of God. I read the Cambridge commentaries and it's appalling. It's literally appalling what some of these people say. Oh, this doesn't mean what it says. And that was inserted later. And they have no idea what they're, what they're doing. They have no idea what they are mishandling and the repercussions of what they are saying and their scholarly thoughts about how smart they are. If they had thought through just a little further, they would have come to the picture of Christ and seen why God said something he did. We'll talk about something in this sermon this week. Translations say one thing. And it's not wrong, but it's not according to the Greek, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew, okay? Does anybody know what the word active and passive means? You've got something that's active, something that's passive. Active is I'm doing something. Passive is something that's being done to me, okay? We're going to see that in this week's sermon. And translations don't reflect this. And so you wouldn't have any idea. But when you see it, 
I'm telling you this now, so when you hear me preach on it, you'll say, I remember that and I'm going to pay attention and you'll learn something. Otherwise, it may just go over your head. You know, you yawn and you forget. But when you hear that, all of a sudden you're going to say, I need to pay attention because that is something that is actually revealed in the New Testament, in theology that John Calvin didn't believe. And you're going to see it in this sermon right here. Go ahead. Is the Cambridge people the, the authors of the Cambridge Bible? Uh, probably. They're probably the same scholars. And because they have some very nice though they've got especially in the new testament they got some great commentaries the old testament they just tear it apart and this is inserted by a priest and this is inserted by a jehovahist and this is inserted by an elohist and they make stuff up that all goes back to what's called the documentary hypothesis a guy named julius wellhausen was the first one to really get this thing going as he says well the old testament was actually compiled by four different authors uh jehovah's they call it j-e-d-p Jehovah, Elohim, D is Deuteronomy, and P is priest. And they said, they say this line was inserted by a Jehovahist. This line was inserted. That word actually comes from a priest. And they do this. And you know how you know that's not true? All you need to know is one type of uh, literary device, and it blows their, their thoughts out of the water. It's called a chiasm. If there is a chiasm and it shows that there is a pattern which was there at the very beginning, then J-E-D-P cannot be true. And these chiasms go over entire chapters. They go over several chapters. They cover entire books of the Bible. And therefore, it cannot be true. But these scholarly people say, well, that was written by a Jehovahist, and that was later inserted by an Elohist, and forget the documentary hypothesis. That is nonsense. Anyway, we'll go on. Knowing everything about the Bible is a good thing, we know. But without love, just what good is that knowledge to us? So what if I know Hebrew and Greek and put on a linguistic show? How much closer does that get me to Jesus? I could know every detail of every story found in this book. And when someone cited it wrong, I could make a giant fuss. But I, if I never open my heart and take a good look, how could I expect to be pleasing to Jesus? Instead, the heartfelt faith of a child is such an important thing. Walking humbly with the Lord should be the goal of each of us. When we speak of the Lord, our voices should ring. I know that these will surely bring a smile to my Lord, Jesus. 8.3. But the man who loves God is known by God. Okay. This verse completes the parenthetical phrase which began in 8.1. In this, one might expect Paul to say, but if anyone loves God, that person knows him. However, this would only lead to more ego within an already puffed up church. It is possible to know God in a general sense, but it is impossible for a finite man to know the infinite God in his fullness. And so he uses the passive, is known by him, rather than the active, knows him. He states the same type of thought in 2 Timothy 2.19, where he says, The Lord knows those who are his. Such nuances in communication are essential to recognize. An important thought which requires understanding the nuance of what is being said is found in 1 John 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John says that God is love. But this cannot be turned around to say love is God. There is a definite article in front of God in the Greek. 
the God. God is not limited to love, but it is a definition of his character that we can understand. Again, Paul uses this same type of wording in Galatians 4 verse 9 as when he says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. Yes, it is true that the Galatians and the Corinthians know God, but this is only in a limited way. Understanding this then, we can uh, then apply what Paul is relaying to the context of the rest of the parenthetical statement. He is using what is known as a metalepsis for us to grasp his intent. A metalepsis is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is used in a new context. A good example of this, I need to go and catch a worm tomorrow. This leads to the common expression that the early bird catches the worm. That's right. This means to get an early start on the day and thus to be successful in whatever endeavor is intended. The subject I in the first phrase is compared to the subject early bird in the next. He is substituting love with knowledge in order to show that love is the principal thought in that which edifies. In our love of God, we are known by him. Such should be the case in our love of others. The main subject of this chapter is food sacrificed to idols, as mentioned in verse 1. We can have a completely accurate knowledge about the subject, and yet we can err in our handling of it. If we fail to act in love towards others who have less knowledge than we do in the use of our knowledge, then we will fail and fall short of what God expects. As Albert Barnes knows on the, notes on this topic, a man should not be guided in his contact with others by mere knowledge, however great they may be, but that a safer and better principle was love, charity. Whether exercised toward God or man, under the guidance of this, man would be in little danger of error. Under the direction of mere knowledge, he would never be sure of a safe guide. It was important for Paul to include this parenthesis at the beginning in order to establish the truth that knowledge is no substitute for love. But love mixed with knowledge is necessary to complete the picture in the guidance that he will present. Everybody got that? Knowledge by itself isn't going to do anybody any good without love. But love all by itself is not going to get it either. You have to have knowledge mixed with love because you can love somebody right into hell by not giving them knowledge. Okay? Goes on in churches all the time, all around the world, and it's getting worse because people do not have proper knowledge. Life application. The subtle nuances of how words are used in scripture are important to pay attention to. When we grasp what is being relayed, we can then act on the matter appropriately. Love is necessary when exhibiting knowledge on a matter in order to ensure that the weaker in knowledge isn't further weakened in his faith. Having said this, no matter how delicately one handles an issue, people will almost always find offense in religious and in political dialogue. Eventually, one can love another to the point where nothing at all is said. This is a trap that the Christian must avoid. You must avoid that trap. 8 4. Verse 1. The uh, early bird does get the worm. Okay. But it's the second rat that gets the cheese. It's the second rat that gets the cheese. That's, that's correct. 
You got a rat trap, and the first rat does not get the cheese. He's early. The second one. Yeah, he's early. That's true. I, that's very good. I'll have to remember that and use that in the sermon someday. Okay, 8-4, go ahead. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. An idol is nothing at all in the world. There's no God but one. Okay, we can go home. That settles it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, we'll go ahead and analyze it anyway. Therefore, begins the main discourse of the subject at hand. And yet, it is relaying, relying on the parenthetical statement that he just finished. The thought process thus far goes as follows. One, now concerning things offered to idols. A, we know that we all have knowledge. B, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. C, which is linked to 1A, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And then D, which is linked to 1B, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And then point two, therefore, after considering 1A through 1D, what the Bible gives, a, when the Bible gives a therefore, it is always important to go back and see what it is there for. That's correct. And so to begin his discourse on the subject, he reiterates the first half of verse 1 again by saying, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. In essence, now that I've explained to you a more important issue, which is directly connected to your question, I will now answer your question. And he does so immediately by saying, we know that an idol is nothing in all of the world. In this, his direct response is tied to knowledge, as mentioned in 1a above. Everyone who is called on Christ should intuitively realize that an idol is nothing. You should just know it. If you've called on Christ and he's Lord, then right. nothing else is Lord. You ought to know that. It is a part of the creation and has no ability to change the outcome of anything. If something is sacrificed to it, it has no more ability to respond to the sacrifice than does a handful of dirt or a cup of water. I will say this, when I used to have my store down the road, I was in Asian trade and I'd go over to Thailand or wherever and I'd buy stuff and I'd bring it back and I had importers that I'd buy from as well. And I sold all kinds of stuff. And most of it was things that people want from Asia, like Buddhas and all that crazy stuff. And that's what I sold. Before I had any idea of who Jesus was, that's what I did, okay? And you have to wonder how there's a piece of stone that's carved in the shape of a Buddha. And, oh, that has spirituality to it. Well, that's what people think. They pray to these things. Go over to Thailand and spend some time there. You won't believe it. Okay, you got a piece of wood that's cut up and they put gold leaf on it and the thing is lying down a reclining Buddha. It's 27 feet long and they pray to it. Okay, it is no different than taking a thing of, uh, what do you call it, plastic, a plastic mold and going, and out comes a Buddha. Are you going to pr pray to a piece of plastic? Well, what's the difference between a wood or a stone or anything else? You take the plastic and melt it down and make it into a rat. You can melt it down and make it into a baby toy, right? Melt it down and make it into a plastic bag. It's nothing. An idol is absolutely nothing. It could be anything else if it wasn't what somebody created it to be, or I shouldn't even say created, made it to be. It's nothing. We use the creation in ways that it is not intended to be used. You can make a Buddha out of metal. You can make it out of cloth. And then you can make that cloth into a shirt. 
and people pray to these things. I didn't think anything. I just, you know, I'm selling the stuff and not thinking about it. And then all of a sudden the lights came on one day. Then I couldn't put the key in the door anymore. I couldn't even open the door. I, I just said, I got to get out of here. I can't do this anymore. You just don't think things through. Your life is just like you've got a pall over your eyes. And all of a sudden it's lifted and everything has color. Everything has purpose because the Lord is there. Okay. Because this is so, then the sacrifice has no meaning either. The idol has no meaning. And therefore, when you sacrifice an animal to that idol, it has no meaning. That's Paul's logic. It can have no meaning at all. I hope people will follow along very carefully with his line of thought here. It will save you all kinds of neuroses later in life. Okay. It was a futile gesture to a futile non-God. And this is all the more certain because, as Paul says, there is no other God but one. This short phrase was preceded by, and that, which again ties it to 1a. And that, there is no other God but one. This is knowledge which every believer should certainly possess because they have rejected all other religious systems and have called on Christ as Lord. If he is Lord, he is God, and there is none other. This is knowledge that should be certain, but though understood by some, in some measure by all true believers, it may not have been properly processed by all of them. This will inevitably cause a conflict in them when considering the issue of food sacrificed to idols. When it does, their faith may be challenged. Before addressing this, though, Paul will continue to speak concerning knowledge for two more verses. Life application. When reading the Bible, it is a good habit to reconsider what was previously stated when coming to prepositions such as for, and, but, therefore, and so on. If the context is still unclear, try mapping it out in a similar manner and reconsidering the context. This will often open up the passage to what is intended by the writer. Now, unfortunately, there are prepositions such as in the Hebrew. You have the, it's, it's its own word, but it's connected to other words and it becomes a part of that word. It's the letter Vav, okay? So I say I'm, uh, the first sentence of the Bible will show you. Bereshit bara Elohim et, Bereshit uh, bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz, that V. Ve'et, it's the same word, et, but now it has a V on there. And that means and, okay? But, it can also mean but, it can mean uh, then, until, okay? It, it, what is the thought going on in people's minds? And so when you read a Bible and it says and, that's certainly correct because the word is translated as and. But somebody else may translate that same passage as then, and they may do it incorrectly. And so now you've got an incorrect impression because the then isn't really a then, in, but they're reading it and they're thinking, well, this follows after that and therefore it must be then. But when you do a study of it, you find out that isn't correct. So maybe it should be a but, okay? Maybe it should be an and. Saying and is probably always the safest because when you come to the and, you stop and you think, well, when did this happen before? Okay? And then you can think about it. That V that begins uh, uh, a word also begins words that begin like 20 books of the Old Testament. Maybe it's 10 or something. I, I documented it at the beginning of the book of Ruth. The, the book of the Bible actually begins with and blah, blah, blah. And what does that show you? Yeah, there's, it's just a continuing story that God is writing. 
okay? It's just one thing. And so when it starts and this, God is showing you, this is just a continuation of what I've been giving you, okay? We don't get that in English. They just say, you know, Jonah went out and did this, but it says and Jonah or whatever, okay? So just so you know, sometimes following the prepositions in a translation of the Bible may not be the best uh, thing to do, but at least you'll get kind of a grasp of what's going on. So I would even recommend it in a Bible that may not be 100% correct is go through, highlight or circle all of your prepositions and it will help you at least see a progression of thought that's going on, okay? Don't want to get too deep on that, but it's, it is it is important to uh, see these things. Yeah, okay. Remember the line started with so then. So then, that's right. Okay, and so there you go. That's a preposition. And somebody else might have it say and then, and somebody else might... Anyway, um, there's one word in the uh, Greek, eis, E-I-S, and that can be translated numerous ways. And that's the one Will Groban one time, he said, I think I broke my brain on the word eis. He sent me an email. I mean, literally, he's going through the biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, which he did graduate with his degree in that. And he said, I, I remember reading that email and I thought, I know how he feels. I know how he feels because I felt that way, like taking tests for uh, wastewater or something. You, you think you've broken your brain, it hurts so bad. And he did that over a single word because of the complexity of making sure, if you care about the word of God, that you do it properly. Okay, so um, read that um, one more time. If you do this, go through with the prepositions and highlight and uh, note them. It will often open up the passage to what is intended by the writer, okay? Maybe do it with two or three versions in front of you. We got one person that comes on Sunday, okay? He has every Sunday, he has what's called a parallel Bible. Every uh, page of the Bible has four different versions on it, okay? And he will walk up at the end of a sermon and he will say, Charlie, why does this version say this and the other three don't? And he goes through all four versions every single Sunday, and he wants to know exactly what the truth is of this matter. That is commendable in my book, that somebody would spend that much effort, okay? Now, imagine you have four, a parallel Bible, and you have all of your prepositions circled on all the pages all the way throughout the Bible, and you can get a better understanding of what's going on. That would be a real achievement if you did that. Anyway, there you go. Eight five. Even if there are so-called gods, small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Okay. Continuing on with his thoughts concerning knowledge and love, Paul introduces a hypothetical argument using words translated for even if. It is important to understand that Paul is not implying that there truly are other gods, but that this is what people may think in their confused worldview, like Charlie Garrett sitting down at that stupid store. Even the Old Testament speaks in this manner. From the law itself, Moses shows that there are many gods and many lords. I'm going to take you to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to go to chapter 10 in verse 17, and it says there, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. People all over the world bow to things they think are gods, even though they aren't. The words in the Bible, including the quote from Deuteronomy and from Paul's words here, are meant to indicate the belief by some that these gods exist, but not that they actually do. 
They are no more real than the imagination of those who follow them. These so-called gods are everywhere in the world and are to be found in all cultures. Some are found in heaven in the minds of those who follow them. In this thought includes the gods of Greek and Roman culture, such as Zeus, Apollo, Hermes, and so on. Also, there are heavenly gods in the stars and constellations and so forth. Then, of course, there were and still are representations of them on the street corners and in temples in every location. These would be the gods on earth. But there were other such earthly gods. Caesar was proclaimed a living god. Trees were believed to be divine, and certain mountains or valleys may have been believed to be places of divine presence. When I was in Malaysia, I may have said this in a class before, if not, it's interesting. When I was in Malaysia, very large population, mostly Malay, 49% or whatever, but then you have a large population of Chinese, you've got a large population of Indians. Where did the Indians come from? When the British were in India, they had all their servants and they worked in the, the fields and stuff. And when Malaysia was taken over, colonized, hey, uh, whatever, John, you're moving down to Malaysia. You're going to take over a tea plantation down there. Oh, good. Well, I'm taking my 47 Indians with me. And pretty soon they're like, I don't know, 6% of the population. They're all over the place. Well, when they were expanding the Klang Highway, which went from Kuala Lumpur down to Klang, which is on the coast, they had a giant banyan tree. And the banyan tree was in the way. And so what did they do? They got the crane out there and they started to work on it. And the crane fell over. And the Indians immediately ran down there from all over Malaysia, put their robes and stuff all around it and started praying to it and called it sacred and wouldn't let anybody cut it down. They're praying to it. Yeah, she's looking like it's insane. It, it is insane. But this is what we do. What? It happens today, it happens today in the world. It happens here in America. Don't cut that tree down. Don't cut that tree down. We worship the created rather than the creator who is forever praised. So this happens all over the world. It happens more with the left than the right in this country, a lot more. A lot but more. it does happen with people on the right as well. We worship the creation. We worship things that we should not worship. Okay? This happens. Sorry. Anyway, yes? I was reading Ezekiel this morning. And it says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. hearts. Should, should I listen to them? He said. That's right. No, I, I won't listen, listen to them. them. Absolutely <laughs> right. Now, just so you know, Jesus said, and he argues in the New Testament about the Psalms, which say, has, does it not say that ye are gods? Okay. All right. That's not speaking of you being a God in the sense of God. Okay. The word Elohim can have various meanings in the Old Testament. Some people take it way too far. There are people that take that particular doctrine way too far. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to malign anybody, but stick to what is reasonable. Because if you do a thorough evaluation of what these people say with words like Elohim, you'll find out that they're always wrong. Okay. But they get into these words and they start taking them down. They take people down paths which they should not be on. Okay. Anyway. Um, even Paul and Barnabas were proclaimed gods after performing a miracle in Jesus' name. Let me take you there. This is in Acts chapter 14. It says this in uh, verse 11. It says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, 
whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran out among the multitude, crying out. Okay, so they were going to sacrifice these people, calling them gods. And then what did they do just a few minutes later? They went to stone them. They were so fickle that obviously they're not gods, so now we're going to stone them. The apostles obviously argued against this, stating that the people should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. That's Acts 14, 15. This is the type of thing Paul is speaking of in verse 8, 5. As noted, he is merely making a hypothetical argument. He's not arguing for the validity of such gods. He is relaying that some believe that there are other gods for a reason which will become evident in the coming verses, and his thoughts are directed toward a loving attitude concerning our handling of delicate issues in the presence of those who still struggle with these things. As the thought progresses, keep in mind that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Life application. When reviewing verses in the Bible, context must be carefully considered. Jesus quoted a verse from, here it is, from the Old Testament about gods, which is often misused even from the pulpit today to indicate that we are divine beings when we come to Christ. Such is not the case, but error can creep in easily when individual verses are taken out of their intended context. 8.6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom all things came and through whom we live. We live. Okay. Continuing on with his knowledge portion of things offered to idols, Paul finishes up with this verse. He has just noted that there are many gods and many lords. In this he meant in perception, not in reality, as can be seen in this verse. Yet for us there is one God. Unlike the rest of the unregenerate world, we possess the knowledge of the absolute truth that there is one God. This is then in contradistinction to the lie that there are many gods. This, is one, this one God is the Father, as he says. In this, Paul is not speaking of the Father within the Godhead as separate and distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit. Rather, he is using the term Father when speaking of God in the absolute sense. This one God is our Father. We know this is the sense in which he is speaking because he does not use the term Son when speaking of Jesus in the coming words. Instead, he will speak of Jesus in parallel thought. Therefore, one God, the Father, is God who is the Father, of whom are all things. That's important to understand because a certain group of people called the Jehovah's Witnesses will come and tell you, see, there's one God, and they have misunderstood and misapplied this particular verse, not taking it in its intended context. God, our Father, is the source of all things. They exist because he wills them to exist, and nothing exists apart from his will. There is no other God, and all of creation was created by him. And we for him, Paul says. This refers to his faithful believers who have put their hope in the Messiah. We were created for him and by him to be a praise and a glory to him. God so intended this, and his will is effected in our existence and in our state in him. 
In parallel to that, Paul continues on with, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. It is important to note the absence of the word son to understand properly. It is parallel to, not in addition to, his prior words concerning the Father. Again, his previous verse noted that there are many gods and many lords, a set of parallels, gods and lords. He first addressed gods as opposed to one God. He now addresses lords as opposed to one Lord, Jesus Christ. Everybody see that? Okay, we've got parallelism here. That's another literary device. You've got chiasms, you've got parallelisms, you've got all kinds of literary devices. This is one of them. Understanding this important, this understanding this important note is because aberrant cults such as the Jehovah's Witnesses try to subordinate Jesus by inaccurately analyzing this verse. See, there's one God, the Father, and so Jesus isn't God. Such misrepresentations fail to accurately handle God's word issued through Paul's hand. This one Lord, Jesus Christ, is through whom all th are all things. It is set in parallel with the note about the Father of whom are all things. See the parallelism there? He's letting you know Christ is God. All right? If you don't catch the parallelism, you're going to miss out what's being said. God is the source and Jesus is the member within that source by which all things came into being. He is the word of God. Let me take you to John 1 verse 1. And arche halagos, oh, I'm sorry, that's Greek. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Everybody got that? He is the vehicle we could use that God used to perform the acts of creation. He is the instrument of God's performing the creation. He is God. And then we have in Colossians 1, which I may cite, and if I do, you're going to have to hear it twice, but Colossians chapter 1, and it says here in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. There's, you got what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 8. Here it is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That could be one of two words. The word that is used in the Greek does not mean firstborn created. It means the firstborn that is not created. Okay. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He cannot be created if he was before the creation. It's not possible. And in him, all things consist. Now the word consist there, I don't like. There are other words, the New International Version paraphrases it, but they do a very good job by uh, by him, all things are held together. That's right. Okay. John Darby uses one word, which I think is totally sufficient. It describes exactly what it is, subsist. Instead of consist, which is like pudding, you've got the consistency of, and that means it's made of this and this and this, and you whip it together and it's consistent. That's not what we are thinking of when we say that. By him, all things subsist. They are held together by him. And that is confirmed in one other place. Where is that? 
Hebrews 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high amen. it is christ amen christ from beginning to end and when it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high that's right it is a symbol of power it is not a literal position god doesn't have parts there are no arms and legs and noses on god it is the position of power, okay? So don't make these fundamental errors that the Jehovah's Witnesses do. And if they come to your door, tell them to go away, all right? <laughs> Let's see here. Um, I mine, just Mine says holds together. Holds together. That's a very good translation. By him, all things hold together. Okay, finally, Paul says that it is the... But that's more of a paraphrase. It's a single word. I like the word subsist, if you can grasp what that means. Everything is subsisting by him. Consisting just doesn't get it. It could if you used it properly, but we don't think of the word consist in the way that it's intended there. Finally, Paul says that it is the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we live. This is parallel to the thought concerning God the Father, which said, and we for him. Everything is parallel here. Unless you get the parallelism, you will not understand that he is speaking of God in the sense of the Father, not God the Father. And then he is speaking of Jesus as that same thing. Okay, there we go. Jesus is the creator and he is the regenerator. We exist physically because of him and we are spiritually quickened by him when we receive him. I'm so happy that we came to those words today because guess what we're going to talk about on Sunday? When we receive him. So much for John Calvin's theology on that particular issue. Watch the sermon. Learn what I'm talking about. It is prefigured. It is foreshadowed. It is type and picture from Numbers chapter 19 of what we are saying right now, right here. It is a marvelous passage. I wish that we had done the two... Uh, uh, chapters one week after another but that's okay because the resurrection day is my favorite day of the yeah. entire year yeah. and burke wasn't here but i lost it at the end i always do i try my best to not do that and i, I got to the point where i just lost it oh what he did for us I, I i oh what christ did you know you think about it you think about what you've done in your life and that necessitated the death of christ i mean you individually and the weight of your sin alone was enough to bring him to tears in the Garden of Gethsemane. Your sin alone and all of the sin of all of the world throughout all of the ages was placed on the Lord and he took that for us. How can we, how can we not be astonished at that? How can we not be astonished at that? Jesus is the creator, he is the regenerator. We exist physically because of him and we are spiritually quickened by him when we receive him. All is a work of God, and all is by Jesus Christ. Calvinists will say, if you receive Jesus, then you're getting part of the glory. That is absolutely nonsense, and you'll see that on Sunday's sermon. That is absolutely nonsense. We do nothing 
in the regeneration process. Saying that we have to receive it is not participating in any way, shape, or form. He did everything, but he allows us to choose. That is free will in man. What Calvinism teaches, and you know, John Calvin, people take him out of context quite often, but what Calvinism of today, especially the tulip, if you know what that is, is wholly, entirely inaccurate. You must receive Jesus Christ. Anyway, life application. When you pray to Jesus, you are praying to God. When you pray through Jesus, you are praying through our mediator to the Godhead. Jesus is God and Jesus is our Lord. By carefully examining scripture and in its intended context, we can see that there is no division between Jesus and God. And yet there is a Godhead in which three persons of the Trinity exist. One essence, three persons. And we use the term person that gives us a mental image of three different things. It doesn't work that way. We can do the Trinity again sometime on the board. We probably will during 1 Corinthians. I'll show you that. I'll give you a quick example and then we can define it more sometime. Time. Time is one thing. When we say the future and the present and the past, we don't look at three different things. It's all time. It's just in relation to where we are at any point in time. What is future to me right now is now past to me because the sentence is over, right? It is still one stream of time. And yet there is a future, there is a present, and there is a past, and each one of them does something different. Just as God, there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. They're all one. They all exist simultaneously, and yet they all perform a different function within the Godhead. Okay? 8-7. Yes, go ahead. You speak can loud I so they can hear. What's that? Can I digress a little sure, bit? Sure, digress. At the, at the cross. There was darkness, it said. Three hours. Three hours. No wonder there was darkness. All the demons were there rejoicing. Everything. Everything. But Colossians 2, he made a show of them openly. He came out of the Public country. spectacle. I, I, I love that. I love that too. And that's not a diversion at all. That's <laughs> wonderful. He made them a, a public spectacle, triumphing over them yeah, yeah. by the cross. Praise God. Okay, 8 7. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience, conscience is weak, it is defiled. Okay, this reads a little different, so I'm going to read it as well. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Says the same thing, just a little differently. Okay, that was verse 7. Paul has been speaking of knowledge concerning things offered to idols for the past Two verses. He now enters into, into the fact that not everyone has that knowledge by stating, however. This then is in contrast to what should be obvious, but it is a knowledge which is lacking in some for whatever reason. And so he continues by saying that for some with consciousness of the idol, there is a definite hindrance in their ability to accept anything offered to that idol even though it is actually nothing at all. Their conscience tells them that if something was offered to an idol and they were to eat it as a thing offered to an idol, then they have somehow done something wrong. 
As an understandable example, suppose you were to go to the local Buddhist temple because they have a great farmer's market. While there, you see meat being sold too. Because you're a big fan of steak, pork, chops, and lamb cutlets, you decide to buy a few of each. But then you hear that the animals were sacrificed first as an offering to the idol at the temple. Is it okay to buy that meat now or not? I can tell you that there is a Buddhist temple up in Tampa. If you want to get some really great bargains, some really great food, some great lunch, go there. It is marvelous. Okay? And they may tell you, this will sacrifice to idol. Oh, uh-oh, that's, what do you call it? Not politically correct. I'm sorry. Wow, am I big trouble with the Asians. My wife's going to beat me up. Okay, so, um, but then you hear that, the, oh yes, Paul has just said that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. After that, he explained what he meant in the next two verses. And so the answer is, yes, you may buy the meat. Your conscience tells you that there is no God but one, and you know that sacrifice has no validity at all. Therefore, your conscience on this matter is undefiled, and your devotion to God through Jesus Christ is unhindered when you buy and eat those tasty delights. However, there is another consideration to be made. Those who have a conscience about the idol, not understanding that it is nothing in all the world, may not recognize your liberty in Christ. You're going up with a new Christian that hasn't read Pauline theology. This is because their conscience, being weak, is defiled. If you buy and eat meat in the presence of someone like this, what will be the result? Paul will continue to analyze this situation, explaining that love for the weaker brother is more important than your correct knowledge of the matter. He will also further address, address the issue later in the book. As he said when he began this chapter, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Life application. If you find yourself in a situation where you may harm the conscience of a weaker brother, what you need to do is first act in love and not do what would cause them greater confusion. After that, you should take the time to properly instruct them in the matter showing them directly from the Word of God what is correct. If you don't remember, tell them to watch this particular uh, uh, Bible study and then next week's and the one after that, and then they'll be properly trained. If they still don't pay attention, have your lunch, okay? Uh, once you have done this, you have shown love and respect for them and validated the stand by, the stand by God's standard. If after that they still disagree, you can do no more. They have willingly failed to see the true intent of the matter because there is no higher authority than what God has presented through his word. To understand, think of an issue from the U.S. Constitution. Owning a gun, for example. If you have a gun and another person says, you shouldn't own that gun, that's just wrong. All you need to do is take them to the Second Amendment and read it to them. After that, you show them your permit which authorizes you to own the gun within whatever state you belong to, and maybe you even take the time to show them your bill of sale. If they still say, and most lefties will, that you shouldn't own a gun, then disregard whatever they say. You are no longer under any obligation to be concerned with their conscience. It was defiled, you attempted to show them the valid proofs in their error, and they rejected your proofs 
you can do no more. Go enjoy your target practice and leave them at home. All right? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, which reveals to us truths that are astonishing in their implication. We thank you that you have given us a sure word that covers all of these issues completely so that we don't have to worry, are we offending somebody or not? We can know it that we're offending them. We can then correct their knowledge. And if they're still offended, then we've done what we can because your word is the ultimate expression of who you are. And it's what gives us something we can do and something we can't do. So help us to do these things in love, but help us to be firm and bold in proper doctrine, not vacillating, not waffling, not letting other people take advantage of our soundness in you and our ability to, and our desire to follow you as your word states. Help us in this because it's difficult, Lord. We face a lot of opposition in this world. We face a lot of challenges to our faith. And sometimes we get weak in that. Help us not to be that way, but to be firm in your word, but loving at the same time. Help us in this, Lord, and we will give you all the glory and the honor that you are due. And we will do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Yeah. Yes. What happened to the tree in the road? The tree in the road? I don't know. I never did follow through with the story, but knowing knowing the Hindus over there, that tree's still there and they built the road around it. I don't know, but that's probably the case. Place of pilgrimage. Yes, a place of pilgrimage. Okay, we're going to go to there.